Right, let's ho ho ho. Welcome to this festive episode of The Biofiles with myself, Ed, and we have Jack and Diz here as well, where we're going to be taking you through three interesting and maybe tenuously uh, Christmas or festive-related science stories which we've enjoyed researching in the recent past, which we hope to discuss today. So we've hoped you had a, um, a Merry Christmas, and in between this time, between Christmas and, and New Year's, and maybe a bit beyond into the early New Year, uh, you can enjoy listening to a bit of science and a bit of chat to, um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know why you want to listen to this, but we enjoy doing it, so if you fancy, then, um, then do listen. So without further ado, Jack, if you want to uh, kick off with your first story, if you want to kick off first. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so yeah, mine is quite Christmassy, it's all about reindeer. Um, and uh, it's a, a paper I found. I think a few people have done research in this area, but I think it's more or less just like one or two big papers um, looking at reindeer antlers as a potential cure for arthritis and also bit science fictiony, but like regrowing limbs and stuff like that, a bit like a lizard or something. Um, because, yeah, as, as you might know, reindeer, they grow their antlers every year and then shed them again, grow them again, shed them again. Do they completely they, shed off? Do they completely yeah, get yeah, they, like a snake where the skin goes and they're still like a... They under- shake them off and it's drops. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't remember exactly how they do it, but they, I think they like cut off the blood supply when it gets to like springtime. And then, yeah, they pretty much just like shake them off. And it's all a bit gory, I think, as well, because they end up bleeding everywhere. Oh. Um, Don't they yeah, peel? Like something on them peels, doesn't it? And it look really bloody, and like because it looks like the antlers have peeled skin off them, and then they like shake them loose. It's like felt almost, like on them. I think before they mature fully. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. I think when they start growing them, they're covered in that like fuzz and skin and stuff. Yeah. And then when they're like fully grown, then they like scrape the skin off, and they just have the exposed like bone antler bits. Oh, but yeah, it looks it looks pretty gory when they're doing that bit. It looks blood and skin everywhere. It's gross. And um, how do we know how they're able to to grow these things again? Because that's kind of like another limb being grown year in year. Well, out. yeah, it's a really rare thing. Apparently, they're the only mammals that are able to regenerate bone like structures in this way. Um, I think it's technically cartilage, and then it like hardens into bone. I'm not sure if it's like full like proper bone or like just extra hard cartilage um but yeah they were saying it's this thing called thymosin beta 10 uh which humans have as well but apparently like genetically there's a seven percent difference in the genetic code and that is enough to be able to allow them to you know magically regenerate their bone like this which humans and other mammals aren't capable of Wow. Um, what does it do for us? Yeah, where are humans ones? Where's our thymus in 10? So, basically, they have completely the opposite function in humans as they do to deer, which is, it just goes to show how like, a little difference, a little 7% difference can completely change the effects of a protein like that. So, in the deer, it stimulates cartilage growth and angiogenesis, which is blood vessel growth, um, which is something you see in well, tissue when it's developing, like muscle tissue, and in tumours as well. Um, That's how, like, tumours can trick the body into feeding them with blood. Um, And then in humans, it does the opposite. It's actually 
discourages growth and discourages angiogenesis, blood blood vessel growth. Um, where, where? Like kind of during development when we don't need to be like, is that so angiogenesis might be going on and then you produce thymus and tenants, like, all right, we're going to stop. Stop yes. angiogenesis now. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's sort of, yeah, in controlling your growth and stopping you from ending up like seven feet tall with like extra legs or something. Um, you could have done with a bit more thymus and tenants, Jack. Yeah, yeah, I could a bit, have bit less, yeah. sorry, a bit less. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go down to the shop and start injecting myself. Yeah. Um, growing antlers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just grow antlers. <laughs> it's nearly mating season, according to this, <laughs> <Yeah>. anyway. <laughs> when is your mating season, Jack? <laughs> still wait for it. Still wait for it. <laughs> it's a very short, short window. Um, but yeah, it's quite cool. So they were saying it could be used to cure like arthritis and stuff like that um by encouraging your cartilage to grow back so i think with arthritis the problem is your cartilage wears away and then your bones start just grinding together yeah um so it could help with that um and like healing as well so is it like would you inject you inject this into the site or would you think you you probably wouldn't eat it would you because then that would be um or ingest it sorry it would be non-specific in terms of where it ends up and you probably break it down yeah, yeah, I think it would be like injecting it into your knee or um, they were saying as well for like chronic injuries. So they were saying one example they gave was like, you know, in diabetes when people's feet get all messed up um, and obviously that can cause like long lasting damage. This could be a way of even if the foot has been messed up for a long time, it's a, a way of getting some blood back in and getting it to heal itself a bit more. Yeah, but yeah wow. it would be localized because you don't want obviously it's like another species signaling protein you don't want that like all around your body circulating too much yeah where um where where are they at in terms of research have we had any trials have they, like injected into mice and seen mice start growing antlers or i don't think so i think this was it was only a couple of years ago so maybe they haven't had time to do like a follow-up study yet in other species i think they were just i think they were testing it in vitro but not in other species in vivo yet Okay. So yeah, just testing it like in a petri dish, basically. Yeah, yeah. I guess we distinguish in vitro is when you you test on cells outside of an organism, um, or something outside of an organism, as Jack says, in petri dish. And in vivo is when it's inside an organism, be that a mouse or human. Ooh. Do they have bone marrow <laughs> inside? Badlers. If it's not bone, probably mm. not. Oh, you said it was cartilage, didn't you? Yeah, like it has, so the antlers have blood supply, so they have blood vessels inside them, but yeah, because they're not proper, mm. like, skeletal bone, it, I, I'm not sure if they have marrow or not. So it's not the same as, like, a narwhal's horn, or, like, teeth, which are keratin? Mm. No, the, the, sorry, the narwhal's horn is, like, keratin, isn't it? It's, it's like your hair. But it's I mean, cementum. Just... cementum. It's cementum. Cementum. Yeah, so... It's an unusual structure, quite unlike our own teeth. Um, they do not contain enamel, the hard outer coating of human teeth, but present a bone-like material called cementum. I oh. thought they were ivory. <laughs> um, so you're saying there are no other mammals which do this sort of thing? Like, yeah. Are there kind of non-mammals which produce the same, um, I don't know, keratin not keratin sorry not keratin the same cartilage productions because is cartilage mammal specific as well uh i don't no. think so because sharks have cartilage no. don't they? yeah no yeah, yeah. Um, birds and things would probably have um 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. It'd probably be a completely different set of proteins and pathways and stuff, but obviously you have certain reptiles like lizards and newts and stuff like that. Newts are amphibians. But, um, yeah, they can grow, regrow like whole limbs. Um, but I think that must be a completely different pathway because they were saying, apart from the antlers, you know, obviously, obviously if you chop a reindeer's leg off, it's not going to grow back. It's only the antlers that can do it. Yeah, they can't um, build themselves a stump, a stump leg from their antler no <laughs> just, just grow an antler it? from it's like wrist yeah. <laughs> just walking on an antler now that would be it would be more well do you think it would be more advantageous if they hurt their foot and they could just grow their foot back instead of having to limp around and die they could just grow their foot back or an alternative and continue on as usual but like that would be kind of better for yeah it would survival. they were saying there's something special about they have like these spurs that always stay on the top of their head. Yeah. And that's where mm. the antler growing happens. And I think there's something special oh. about that site that's like extra reactive to this thymus and beta. Yeah. So yeah, like, it, um, it, it, it wouldn't work for other parts of the body. It's just that bit that can that can do the special what's the bit. What's the head of the bone called? Like on your femur that um, grows. Um, oh, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, when... And when uh, when we develop, like the head of our femur grows, that's what elongates us. Um, it's like a really, it's like um, the same. It's not the same site, but it's like a hair follicle. I think grows from the same site specifically. Google says it's a growth plate. Grows. That's it. The growth plate. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Good name. <laughs> well, and that that what does that do? That's where we grow from. That's where up. our bones grow. They grow out mm. of the growth plates. It's only that region of the bone that grows and it elongates from there. So it's not uh, like the whole yeah. thing yeah. goes out. It just goes out from one side, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it always stays at the top of yeah. the growth. Yeah. The and yeah, it, they were saying the same about the antlers. Yeah, it starts off, you know, when they start growing them, it starts from those spurs and then it's only ever like the tip of the antler that's growing. And I think that's why it like branches off into lots of different ones because it's always growing from the top and maybe the top sometimes decides to just like branch off yeah do you know what causes the branch massive capillary network and do you know what causes mm. it to stop or do they keep on going until the mating season's over um i in terms of branching they didn't mention anything oh, no, about no, no. that in terms of stopping growing it's all to do with like hormone changes throughout the like seasons yeah, yeah. that determines when it stops growing wow mm. well do you have any uh, do you have any stop codons for us jack as we reach the end of your segment uh yes i do so i yeah so stop codon uh it turns out there there's a legitimate reason why some people hate brussels sprouts um and i want you to guess out three options what the potential reasons are so is it a genetics b age or c the microbiome which would you say now this was also going to be my stop code on so I, oh. shan't, I shan't answer. No uh, way. Go on, Edith. What do you think? C. C. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Although I think it is. What? It's a bit of a false, false trick question because it is kind of all three to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, they have found that. Um, differences in your oral microbiome so the bacteria and stuff living in your mouth 
can cause your saliva to break down the chemicals in the Brussels sprouts into sulfur volatiles, they said, which uh, give off a particularly unpleasant, bitter and sulfurous taste. Um, and yeah, it is more common in children as well to have these differences in the microbiome. Uh, so that's also why potentially some children hate them, especially when they're a kid and then grow up and end up liking them. Because it kind of changes as That's you really interesting. That is really you know, interesting. You know, they say that when you grow up, your taste changes. Like every five years, you you should try something new again or something that you used to hate mm-hmm. because that's when you're... Uh, this is all wives tell I heard. Every five years, your taste changes. And I always thought it was to do with like taste receptors just changing because you're getting bigger and like things get proportionally bigger. So I just figured like maybe the receptors change and you start to like different things or you perceive the signal differently. But that's actually mental. That is. That's different from what I picked up as well. I only found oh, really? that it was, there was a gene which they think might be associated with um, disliking sprouts, which is actually named the TAS2R38 gene. Um, and that causes, yeah, the, I don't really know, I can't remember what, what the result was, but yeah, your um, perception of the taste was, was then different. Because like, you can genetically not like what is it, um, coriander? Like that can taste of soap yeah. if you have a one like specific gene or, or mutation. So I thought it was um, similar to that. But the microbiome is coming into everything at the moment. It'll be interesting yeah. to see what the research of the microbiome is like in 20 years' time because everything, it's like mm. the um, it's the buzzword at the moment. And I think there's a lot of research for it, but you do wonder if we jump to the, uh, onto the bandwagon of it and does correlation equal causation mm. um, sort of thing. I think they did find like a specific genus. I think it was Fusobacterium nucleatum was the one species that they said is like particularly prolific in sort of turning the Brussels sprout chemicals into the gross tasting chemicals. Yeah. So they did actually name a couple of culture culprits. They didn't just go like, ah, oh, it's probably the microbiome. <laughs> well, that's really cool. That is cool. That is cool. And I shall move us on to our next bit of, or our next segment, which will be uh, my topic. This I was thinking that Father Christmas must eat an awful lot of uh, like kind of mince pies, milk, sweet treats, whatever uh, other people leave out for him. Maybe the old carrot if he's feeling like not giving it to his reindeer. Um, and thought although he is perceived as being a, a rather large, having a large circumference, you think that the amount he would eat of all the millions of children's houses that she goes around, he'd be a bit larger than he is. So I was kind of researching ways in which he might be able to um, to keep that weight <laughs> off and wondered if he might have known about the GLP-1 um, or gluco- glucagon-like peptide 1 uh hormone analogue called semaglutide or as other people might know it as Wegovi or as Empic uh, before before it was recommended as an anti-obesity um, drug even before it might have been used as an anti-diabetes drug um, so I've been looking into yeah these GLP-1 analogues which go under the trade name of Wegovi or as Empic depending if they're used for diabetes and or obesity and uh, kind of looking into how they work and and what they're about and have you guys um have seen this in the news this year? Because it's been quite a lot. There's quite a, the big news story of where, uh, especially nice, the National Chemistry. Institute of something in yeah in the UK recommended <laughs> it as a um, anti-obesity 
uh, drug which can be kind of used or prescribed by doctors um, and kind of went on from there so it's it's a glucagon like peptide that's what the GLP stands for and it's um the glucagon like peptide one sorry is what the GLP one stands for but this is an analog of it which means they've produced this um, glucagon like peptide in kind of their own format so it's meant to represent what this peptide does and it's very similar in structure and uh, you take this by injection, so because it's a peptide, a peptide is a, a small protein, or like a, a, a fraction of a protein. And if you were to ingest this, then it would just get broken up by your gut. But they, um, they've been able to, or you get it injected, and then it can act kind of on your body. And the way it works is um, these glucagon-like peptide 1 is secreted by your intestines after you eat food. And it acts on your... Um, alpha or beta cells, sorry, which we'll get to in a moment, and also your brain. And in your brain, it kind of uh, signals that you are like satiety, so you're you're satiated, satiated after having a meal and you're full, and also fullness, and therefore kind of prevents you from from wanting to eat more. And that's the obese or the anti-obesity kind of um, area that it, it goes for. And then for, as a diabetes treatment, it inhibits the alpha cells, which are found in the islets of Langerhans. So in the islets of Langerhans, one of the greatest uh, kind of cell populations or greatest biological names, I think, in the, yeah. in the human body. And they were, um, they were found by a lad called Paul Langerhans, who not only discovered these during his PhD, but also discovered some things called Langerhans cells as well, which um, are skin cells which are involved in the immune response. He's also discovered in the same paper something called layers of Langerhans, which are just kind of layers of these Langerhans cells. And also he's named something called Langerin, which I didn't actually research what that was, but this um, prolific biologist have discovered all of these these different parts of the human body. Um, but anyway, in these islets of Langerhans, which are found in your pancreas, you have beta and alpha cells. So the beta cells produce insulin and the alpha cells produce glucagon. And insulin is a hormone which is kind of produced when you're uh, when you eat because you're digesting your food the sugar is going into your bloodstream and then insulin is produced and binds to receptors on your cells which then enables glucose to be kind of uptaken by your cells and then they can use it for their own respiration which produces atp which is energy and therefore you convert sugar to energy however with kind of type 1 diabetes um your body is kind of attacking these beta cells and therefore they're not producing the insulin and therefore you can't um, kind of regulate one, the insulin in your body and two, the blood sugar levels in your blood. Well, of course, blood sugar levels in your blood. Then you've also got these um, alpha cells which are producing glucagon and glucagon is kind of like the opposite of insulin where it kind of produces... Um, glucose from your fat deposits so if you ever have excess glucose they'll start being made into into fats and being stored as glu um as glycogen yeah glycogen as glycogen yeah um but yeah glucagon causes a breakdown of glycogen back into glucose and can also produce uh, gluconeogenesis which is another cracking word which just means breaking down um, other stores such as fat into into glucose so glp1 or semaglutide or wegovi and ozempic which are analogs of glp1 they're similar to glucagon um, so they act on they inhibit um 
they inhibit alpha cells from producing glucagon and they actually stimulate beta cells to produce insulin, which increases your insulin levels. And whereas type 2 diabetics um, are unable to intake glucose from their bloodstream into cells, their insulin receptors have uh, become immune to uptaking insulin. And therefore, if you produce more insulin, then you're able to get kind of a bit of a response because you have, you're able to overcome this resistance slightly. And therefore, GLP-1, which improves your insulin production or increases your insulin production, then enables more glucose from your bloodstream to enter into your cells and be used for cellular respiration. So a bit of a roundabout way of saying that. But um, yeah. So and it just spikes insulin production so you can get enough insulin to actually see an effect that in other normal people, a lower amount of insulin would be required to... to yeah, bang on the money. Required. So this was named by Science, which is an academic journal. This um this drug, Owegovi or semaglutide, which is the the scientific name, was named by uh, Science, the academic journal, as their their breakthrough of the year or like kind of top science story of the year. And they were giving a bit of an interesting background into um into how it kind of came from being discovered as a hormone, like GLP one as a hormone, to then actually being produced as a drug. And interestingly, the first drug, it wasn't um, kind of designed off of humans' GLP-1. They found a peptide which was very similar in a lizard's venom, in the glia uh, glia lizard's venom, which was similar to GLP-1 and was easy for them, or easier for them to then produce a GLP-1 analogue from which does seem bizarre. One of the earliest studies they, they did to work out if it was affecting appetite is they got, I think it was 20 males, they got them to have a hearty breakfast as a, I think the paper kind of referred to it as a hearty breakfast. They then injected them with either GLP-1 or with a placebo. So that probably was just like saline solution, so just some, some salty water. And then saw how much they ate at a um, lunch in, oh, at lunchtime, sorry, in a buffet lunch. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of analysed how much food they took and were like, yeah, you know what, GLP-1 looks like it's, uh, it's working. It. <laughs> they're eating more. They're eating more. Oh, they're eating That's less such stuff. bad science. <laughs> well, it's, I think I'm not explaining it very well because I think the science actually was fairly good. It was good. good. So I think, yeah, because I think the measurements they were taking were like were actually quite well, specific enough, um, so to say, so they were able to, um, to kind of draw enough of a conclusion and there have other, there have been other GLP-1 agonists. This isn't the first one that there's been. There's Wegovy and Azempic, but these ones can last a lot longer in your body because they've done a, a few subtle changes to the actual um, genetic code, which means that there's two amino acids which are different and an acetylation site which is different, and this enables it to last a lot longer in your blood. Um, and so there are some other interesting things to to cover, but as time is of the essence, I think in, um, we'll have to to leave it for future studies. One final thing I should say as well is there's talks whether it's um, it's safety is or, or questions about the safety concerns. And for the studies which they've done, the main safety concern is gastrointestinal gastrointestinal difficulties um, or complications, which has led to some people being like kind of pulled out of these trials more so than the placebo um, arms but these drugs haven't like just come around onto the scene they have been around for quite a while especially as diabetes drugs since the early 2000s and 
there hasn't when I was doing a bit of a um, search of the literature there, there isn't much or there isn't major health concerns associated um, with this sort of application which isn't to say there's not going to be and it's still early days so we still need to do the um, specific tests to kind of work out if it is um, if it is completely safe or if it's going to come with even further complications but initially the safety concerns are looking um, fairly fairly good Okay. What, what kind of sorry? What kind of uh, gastrointestinal problems did they say it causes, or did it not say? So it didn't say. There was always quite vague. And um, one of the ways these GLP one analogs work is they prevent gastric clearing, so they or subdue gastric clearing. So yeah, it's probably going to get like really really uncomfortable um, if you're having mm. your intestines like kind of full and your gastro yeah gastric system isn't emptying. Um, okay, so a Christmas stop codon. We have Christmas disease is a uh, disease which is named after the first reported patient called Stephen Christmas, not <laughs> after its first time of diagnosis, Christmas itself. Is but, he um, related to Santa? I think he must be because Stephen is, like, if you shorten Stephen, it does turn into Saint and Saint Christmas or ST, which is Saint. So maybe. But um, unfortunately, this lad did have a deficiency in factor nine. So can you tell me what disease result is resulting from a deficiency in factor nine? Christmas disease. Christmas disease? Quite right. Quite right. <laughs> but <laughs> what's the one? Okay. What does that... Have I, have I worded this? Um... So what dif- disorder does this deficiency result in? So not disease, what disorder does this deficiency result in? A deficiency of factor nine. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go down the sprouts line and it reduces your digestion ability of certain vegetables. That would be very um, very opportune if this guy was called Christmas and had a distaste <laughs> for sprouts. <laughs> That's his answer, Jack. What are we going for? Um... I'm going to say, um, is it alcohol dehydrogenase, the one in your liver that breaks down alcohol? It's not. It's not. The only Christmas link is the fact that this guy's just called Christmas. Oh. Um, <laughs> and yeah. factor nine is involved in the blood clotting cycle. And so if you have a deficiency in it, it results in haemophilia. And more specifically, haemophilia B, which isn't very festive. But as Jack stole my, or didn't steal, as the guy, it's called Christmas disease. All right, (laughs) we're we're stretching here. As a festive joke. (laughs) (laughs) Just the uh, we're past the Christmas time now. We're in the lull between Christmas and New Year, so we'll bring it back down to the uh, the morbid. Actually, it's not morbid. It's just a bit grey and uh, and can be seen as bleak. Anyway, right, I've rattled on a bit too a bit too long there. So we shall go on to our third and final section of the show. It'd be nice and quick, gents. I won't keep you very long. True dids fashion. Uh, I did research this quite thoroughly. It's been a week or so since. Ergo, I've read over my notes, a lot of which I can't read. Most of what I can read, though, is quite interesting. Um, So this is related, funnily enough. I don't actually think we spoke about it. So it's kind of weird that we both come to a similar thing. Um, It's to do with hormones, though, over a protein or a peptide you were talking about, and I'm talking about GDF-15. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that would stand for Growth Differentiation Factor 15. 
which is a member of the Transforming Growth Factor Beta, the TGF Beta superfamily, uh, and it's excreted by a broad range of cells exposed to, a, uh, as a result of exposure to a broad range of stresses. Um, okay, so you're stressed, you're stressed in some way, and you produce GFB15. GDF15, just GDF15. GDF. From the CGFB to family. family. That's okay. just some background information. Okay, okay. Yeah, so you're screening GDF15. Does anybody know, or has anybody heard about what GDF15 does? Does it make you pregnant? It doesn't make you pregnant, but it is upregulated in early pregnancy. Ah, so, there we go. Did you know that? Or are you just, was that just a wild guess? Just a complete wild guess, you know. <laughs> well, you know a lot about pregnancy, sir. Um, so GDF15 is uh, actually a, um, oh, what's it called? An appetite suppressant, or it turns into, one of the effects is, an, is as an appetite suppressant, and it's upregulated in early pregnancy. Um, what it does is like it's it makes you feel sick or nauseous, um, and they've linked it to morning sickness. Oh. Um, so they think that because only certain women um, or a certain populate uh, a certain percentage of uh, the population are affected by GD- elevated levels of GDF fifteen. So like some people get morning sickness really badly, some people don't, and <clears throat> they think it's to do with like your genetics and how susceptible you are to gdf 15 levels and that would bring about like nausea and they're thinking that it's because in this is seen like throughout loads of mammals um rats mice non-human primates and they see elevated gdf 15 in early pregnancy and they think it's to do with avoidance behaviors of like noxious substances um or plants or whatever they could eat that could potentially expose their fetus to teratogens so things that would uh things that would I'm gonna get the definition right alter the fetus development and bring them bring out like uh deformities. Do you guys mm-hmm. agree that's a definition yeah, like, of strategy yeah, rather like, than a fetal toxicant? Like thalidomide was the big famous one back in the sixties yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm glad I haven't butchered that. <laughs> <laughs> so um <laughs> the way it apparently works this is quite a mouthful. Um, it, the GDF15 hormone binds to a specific receptor located in the hindbrain um, called uh, GDNF-RET receptor. It's not just morning sickness, so it's like it, it makes them, it brings out aversive behaviors and avoidance behaviors just because there's not a massive need for food. I found it really interesting because there's not, apparently, there's not a massive necessity for food in early pregnancy. Where there's not that much growth going on, um, oh. it's just the fetal, bo- like the uh, the embryo at this point, or the blastocyst at this point, um, like developing doubling. It's not really that big, so there's not that much of a calorie need. So the idea is that it suppresses how much you eat to avoid the chance that you're going to be exposed to a potential toxicant or a teratogen specifically. Oh wow! You know I mean? um, and so it's a protective feature, and it's carried over in loads of animals. Uh, and stuff but they've they've linked the g well they found the gdf15 hormone to be effective like previously as a anti um obesity uh, mechanism and met the drug metformin actually relies on the mechanism of, of gdf15 binding specifically to um the gdnf ret receptor 
in the brain. So that that present um, that prevents the that presents GFP fifteen from binding because it's already the receptor's already been bound. Uh, so metformin elevates circulating GDF fifteen, so your natural hormone, okay. uh, which is produced by internally by cells yeah. by a variety of cells to a range of stresses. Um, so either you, uh, well, I'll come on to that point in a minute, but um, yeah, you take in metformin, you got you increase GDF circulating GDF fifteen. It um, increases binding, obviously, to the receptor, and as a result, you experience—I wouldn't say sate. So would you call it satiety or satiety? Satiety. Yeah, I wouldn't say it induces satiety as such, but it doesn't. It means that you don't want to eat because you feel sick or you're nauseous, you're uncomfortable. Um, you just don't have that need to eat, so you wow. lose weight as a result. So you, I understand that you don't want to be eating because in case you, you take something poisonous or toxic. Which then affects the um, the development of your embryo or blastocyst. But then, why does it then lead to you throwing up? Is that if you have excess? Like, if is that just it going too far? Because there's there's kind of like I almost think, a scale between not being full and throwing up. Yeah, I think um, nausea generally refers to like feeling and being sick. Yeah, um, and I think if you are feeling sick you might just throw up anyway. But morning sickness people, yeah, like when you when they experience morning sickness, they genuinely do throw up. I presume it's just because the body's trying to get it out of the system. Yeah. Um, trying to get something out to prevent you from potentially having ingested something bad um, at that point. Because it's not like you, your stomach knows what's in it at yeah. that point. It's just like kind of taking it in. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that they highlighted that there's not a net not a massive need for food in early pregnancy yeah that and is these levels i think peter off during and obviously cravings come about and when they start and people start to eat more um towards the later end because the need there the calorific needs that yeah <laughs> so do we um do, <laughs> is a thought process that we could be um you could develop kind of something to to prevent GFP either from being produced or from binding its receptor and therefore you might be able to take a little pilly which prevents you from having morning sickness <laughs> yeah but we've obviously got to be careful because thalidomide was brilliant for curing morning sickness yeah um, yeah and I, I, I'm not sure I should have I should have checked um, whether they know whether thalidomide exploited this fact this um, pathway or not because obviously We've jumped on the pathway, we've exploited the pathway to manage weight loss in otherwise healthy healthy people. Um, take metformin, increases circulating GDF-15, and you don't want to eat as much, so you will lose weight as a result. Um, the pathway is also replicated in other disease states, uh, apparently in several different cancers, osteosarcoma and breast cancer. Um, cell lines, they show significantly upregulated. Um, GDF 15. So these other disease states actually are showing um, like the same effects. Uh, and that's why they look, kind of look so the patients might look so emaciated. They don't want to eat as much. Um, it kind of brings about the thought process that they're losing weight. Like a, a central cancer patient undergoing chemotherapy also has elevated GDF 15. Um, and it might be because they're just off, they're being put off eating because their body's under so much stress and they deal with that stress. That's really interesting. Mm. Yeah. I know um, metformin as well is being used for like anti-aging properties. I don't think it's not been like fully explored yet, but there are a few like Silicon Valley hipsters using it as like an anti-aging really? agent. 
but it, again, it hasn't. There's been like a few people researching it, I think, but I don't think it's been confirmed that it actually works. For well, that. it would it would figure because I've seen I've read some stuff recently on diet and inflammation, and the key apparently the key to being young is to avoid inflammation or inflammatory processes. Anything that causes inflammation, drinking alcohol, eating bad foods, mm. eating good foods, too much of it, or something like that. Um, and so t- if you avoid eating stuff or bringing stuff that is potentially dangerous into the body, if you can avoid the, the feeling that you want to do that by elevating G- circulating GDF-15, then it would figure that it would reduce inflammation episodes. So... I think they've shown as well just all of the general pathways to do with like metabolism and processing your food. They're all linked into the aging process as well because um, I think they've shown that if you minimize your caloric intake, that can slow down your aging a bit. Um, mm. Just because, I don't know, your, metazol- your metabolism is going a bit slower. So you age slower, I guess. But uh, yeah, I think I all these pathways like- are all kind of linked. Yeah. Mm. Very true. Right, anything, um, do any of you lads have anything more to to add? Nope, and no, I don't not, have any more stop codons or anything. Did, do you have a stop codon which you can uh, wangle in here? Um, yeah, when I find the definition of this receptor, <laughs> you guys can have a go at guessing it, because I, I, I wrote it out. Okay, while you, um, while you go for that, here is a, a Christmas completely christmas themed um stop code on for us here so what do you get if you eat christmas decorations if you eat christmas decorations if you eat christmas decorations a red nose i don't know i've seen i've seen punchlines worse than some cracker jokes yeah but <laughs> the punchline's this one is tinselitis ah very good. To be fair, that would have been that's one of the better ones I've heard this Christmas. I think. <laughs> so I can do a step code on for what the receptor is. Go on. Family the receptor's in. <laughs> Riveting. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Okay, what does the G D N F family? Of receptors stand for what's G- the GNDF. Is that what you said? GNDF. No, I've just got it. I've got it completely wrong. I've got it completely wrong. <laughs> no, I don't. Have, I don't have a stop code on. <laughs> GDNF family receptor alpha-like proto oncogene tyrosine protein kinase receptor RET GFRAL RET wow. is what, what GDF fifteen binds to. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's why it's so difficult for me to spit this out. It's like eight different words. <laughs> oh man. Well, I think we'll end with the tin sliders one. We'll, uh, we'll angle that one in at the end, and, mm, and hopefully so. get some Christmas cheer, cheer at the end. <laughs> so thank you for listening to this festive uh, themed episode of Bar I think we started off very festive, and so we got less and less festive as we go along. We hope you enjoyed enjoyed us. Just like the festive period. <laughs> Whoa, maybe for some. Um, you can reach us on the Biofiles podcast at gmail.com as we have changed our email address from the Biofiles 2022 to the Biofiles podcast at gmail.com. 
Uh, and you can find us on Spotify, um, Amazon, YouTube, wherever you find the podcasts, you can reach us there. And we hope to be with you in the new year and wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year as well. And uh, yeah, we'll get back to you hopefully in January 2024 for some more interesting science stories which we'll be discussing together. So from all of us at the Biofiles, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Merry Christmas as well. And Merry Christmas as well. Merry Christmas, y'all.